Welcome to Advancing All Women with Sarah Alter, President and CEO of Next Up. On this show, you'll hear top executives and experts talk the most pressing topics of the moment for women in the workplace, including key issues that affect the advancement of women, creating better workplaces for women of color, DEI and B solutions, and more. Now, here's your host, Sarah Alter. Our beloved audience, all 56,000 of you and growing in across the world, your hearts and your minds will truly be changed today. And I think you've already experienced this, but our goal with our show and our podcast this past year, and yes, it is a year anniversary, um, it's always been to educate and guide you as leaders in how to build DEIB, diversity, equity, inclusion, and belonging into your cultures, into your DNA, and into your business strategy. You know, how do you pave the way for the advancement and equal opportunity for women and diverse leaders? And it's been through the experts and our business partners and members that have so graciously joined us that we've been able to shed light on such challenges and opportunities. Today, we shine the spotlight on a leader who is the epitome of a male ally. He's a servant leader. He's been a serial and highly successful entrepreneur. Um, He was a former board member for Next Up, and he has been a vocal gender equality advocate, and now he's an author. And his book, Burn Rate, Launching a Startup and Losing My Mind. Today, he's going to share his story. He's going to share his professional journey, his personal journey, and his mental health journey. And it is through these stories, these types of stories, and just incredible individuals that when we share them, we all learn how to be better leaders and better people. I'm Sarah Alter. I'm your host of the Advancing All Women radio show and podcast and proudly the CEO and president of Next Up. And I am joined by Andy Dunn, male ally, founder of Bonobos, serial and successful entrepreneur, and now the author of Burn Rate, Launching a Startup and Losing My Mind, as well as Terry Ladder. And Terry, yes, she has been with us a couple times before. If you're thinking, hey, I remember Terry, um, State Program Director for NAMI, Illinois. Welcome, Andy. Welcome, Terry. Thanks, Sarah. Thank you very much. All righty, Andy, we're going to start here. Why did you write this book? So, my story with mental illness begins in the year 2000. I was 20 years old, I was a senior in college, and seemingly out of nowhere, I was diagnosed with bipolar one. It is a cruel illness characterized by high highs and low lows. And we did something unfortunate as a family after I was diagnosed, which is we decided to bury it. We buried the diagnosis. We didn't talk about it. We found ways to explain it away. Um, The mania that I experienced was characterized by a few things delusions of grandeur, messianic zeal. Uh, I stopped sleeping. We think I was up for four nights, became incoherent, oscillating mood states between anger, irritability, joy, sadness. Thanks to the intervention of my family, I was able to get to a psychiatric ward at the hospital, no less, where my mom worked and where I was a candy striper and where I you know, had done part-time jobs. And that added to the shame for me anyway, in the humiliation after I was discharged to know that all these people knew, all these people from that workplace, all of my friends from college, and we all did the same thing. We didn't talk about it. We didn't address it. And being a punk kid, I uh, stopped taking meds. I refused to go to outpatient therapy and, and chose to believe this you know, additional delusion, which is that I didn't have this problem. It was then latent for a decade, um, which was not a good thing. It solidified the fact that this was not me in that I didn't have any major high highs or low lows for 10 years. And then it came, you know, roaring back as I was building a startup 
uh, building bonobos, the highs and lows of the entrepreneurial journey in a lot of ways, I think masked the underlying mood disorder that was also contributing to those highs and lows. And then, um, you know, and I experienced all the usual stuff, catatonic depression, didn't want to get out of bed, suicidal ideation on the one hand, and then this sort of surging state called hypomania, which is really the antecedent to mania. You're still coherent. You're mm-hmm. still rational, uh, but you've got a lot of ideas, a lot of energy, a lot of vision, a little bit of distractibility and irritability. But at the end of the day, you have a lot of the qualities that we come to expect from an entrepreneur who's having a good day. And so in a way that state provided jet fuel for my entrepreneurial drive, enabling me to raise a lot of money for our company over a hundred million dollars, you know, over, over eight years to attract a lot of talent. You know, I think we hired a thousand people over that same period of time, but underneath was this very dangerous uh, ghost. And in 2016, uh, it came back in a big way. I had my second hospitalization for mania. And at this point, it was very clear. This was, this was what I had been dealing with for 16 years. I was ready to deal with it. I was on medication. I accepted the fact that I, that I was, this was a forever diagnosis. I mean, I was 36 years old. So hopefully I'd grown up a bit. Everyone in the family rallied around me, my then girlfriend as well. And I walked out of Bellevue Hospital in New York City from the psych ward and walked straight into handcuffs. And I was arrested for felony and misdemeanor assault, uh, which had occurred during manic, the manic state of violence that um, is all too common from someone who's, who's losing it. And you know, for the rest of the story, you'll have to read the book, I guess. But as you might imagine, it was, uh, it was a hard road getting back to healthy um, it, it was a hard road. And so for me, the book is about, wow, I've been so lucky and privileged to get through it. And I feel like we're, it's high time, you know, that we talk about this and particularly that we talk about it in the workplace. Absolutely. Um, so thanks for having me, Sarah. Yeah, no. Oh gosh, my pleasure. Um, yeah, it's, it's too often the hidden disability and, um, you know, I, I see parallels in that, you know, we have mental health issues in my family as well. And it was always swept under the rug. You know, you yeah. didn't medicate, you know, you didn't go see a therapist. And, you know, fortunately now the world has changed and, and attitudes have changed, but but not to the degree that they probably fully should be changed too. Right. And so, you know, over this last year or two, thankfully, there are so many dynamics at play that have enlightened individuals. But what what was it like in in, in your life at that point where you're like, okay, I got to write a book. I got to write this book. What, what you know, what was going on that prompted you to say, I got to put pen to paper and share my story? Because you're sharing your story is just going to change so many lives. Yeah. Well, well, first of all, I kind of needed a job or I needed something to do. <laughs> you know, I spent 10 years. You need a paycheck. Yep. Okay. I needed, yeah. I needed to do something. Um, and, you know, I'd spent 10 years building Bonobos, spent three years after Bonobos was acquired by Walmart working there. And so I came out in 2020 to kind of set the stage. And when I, if you look back at the timeline, you know, 2016 was this year from hell, really. Um, the legal system repercussions of having been charged with a felony and misdemeanor, the open questions around getting healthy, you know, after the high, high follows so frequently the long low, you know, the high, high could be a week. And then the depression that follows, it might be six months. And I just didn't want to live on the one hand. And on the other hand, I didn't want to give up on behalf of everyone who had rallied around me. And so that was a very hard year. Um, through a great doctor who I saw twice a week and who I still see twice a week through a daily commitment to medication and recognizing that it's not always going to feel great, but I, I don't have a choice. It's a, it's a, it's no different than a physical illness. There's no choice. You just got to take your meds and you got to keep tinkering. If you're not feeling good, Mm -hmm. being really rigorous about sleep, which for me is such a trigger. And then the redemptive love of my family and my now wife who 
was involved and was the recipient of that violence and who remarkably stayed with me. Um, her mother-in-law, uh, my now mother-in-law, her mom was there as well. And I thought my now mother-in-law would advise Manuela, my wife, to head for the hills after this happened. Yeah. I mean, I had been, I wasn't wearing clothes. I struck them both. Um, we'd only been dating for a year or so. And I remember going to see my now mother-in-law afterwards. We sat down at a restaurant uh, in New York City and she put her hand on my hand and she said, Andy, it's just like diabetes. It's no right. different than a physical illness, but you have to take your meds and see your doctor. Absolutely. And if you, if, you, if you take your meds and see your doctor, then I'm good with you staying with my daughter if she wants to stay with you. But if you don't, you're out. <laughs> yeah. And it was yeah. such a healing message. I mean, the tears streaming down my face to be accepted by a family that didn't need to accept me. Um, and as you alluded to, I had some acceptance from a new professional family at that time Absolutely. in Walmart. So this was 2016. And then 2017 was the, you know, pun intended polar opposite. Um, we had the 10 year anniversary of the company. We sold the company for $3 million. I got married. I converted to Judaism. The Cubs won the world series. It was like all these wonderful things. And only about 20 people knew the real story, close family and friends, the Bonobos board, a handful of senior executives at Walmart. Um, it was a very small cohort of people that knew that actually the story from 2017 masked this very different story from, from the previous year. And so I felt tired of the living the dream BS perception that we have yeah. of each other in so many ways. And I remember Architectural Digest ran this beautiful feature on Manuela and me in our home and the mid-century modern place and, you know, the, the beautiful wife and child. And I remember feeling like a fraud that day as the Instagram likes, you know, clicked up. I remember thinking, God, people probably look at this and have a certain image of me and my story and who I am that is entirely divorced from the more textured, complicated, yeah. vulnerable, you know, more powerful story, actually. And so I felt like I had to tell it. And I also felt like I was so scared to talk about this for so long because I thought it would be a career limiting move that given that I have this success story in the rearview mirror and the financial autonomy, if I didn't tell the story with all my privilege, who would? Right. You know, if I couldn't go right. forward, who would? And that was the genesis behind, you know, why? Yeah, no, and, and we always talk about no one should ever feel guilty for privilege. The only time they should feel guilty for privilege is when they don't use it on behalf of others. And so it's it's like so amazing that you are doing that. And that was right around the time too, that you we were blessed to have you join new now next up. And so we were so fortunate that you were, you know, sharing what I'm sure was your precious time. Um, Terry, let's, let's pull you in. Um, you are clearly an, an expert <laughs> and, and leader in this arena with, with all that you do. Um, educate our audience on, on bipolar and what it means and that there's like, I guess, technically two types and sure. it, just so everybody can appreciate yeah. and, and bipolar versus then like schizophrenia. Okay, sure. I'd be glad to. <clears throat> and I've only had to become an expert because I'm also the mother of a young man, uh, now 34 years old, who at age 19 was diagnosed with bipolar one. And many of the experiences that Andy talked about in his book are chapter and verse of what my son went through. The only part my son forgot was he forgot to become a very successful entrepreneur during hypomania. I mean, that's probably because his hypomania would only last about two or three days before it was full-blown mania and psychosis. So, um, uh, so it, 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 I had the privilege to be able to help my son and to be able to spend the next many years, this was back in 2007, learning more about mental health and joining the National Alliance on Mental Illness here in Illinois. Um, so let's talk a little bit about the different types of bipolar. 
what Andy discussed and what my son lives with is, if you can say this sort of classic bipolar one, uh, periods of very high highs, of extreme mania that ramp into psychosis almost without the person realizing that's what's gone on. Usually they don't, uh, resulting in hospitalization or interaction with uh, law enforcement based on, you know, what the particular behaviors might be. Mental illness acts on our feelings, our emotions, and our actions. And so the, our behavior, the kinds of things that we think a person should be able to control, right, how they behave. But bipolar takes that away. And so the actions that people see during a manic episode look like really, really bad behavior, and very often police become involved. So classic bipolar one results in hospitalization, has uh, uncontrolled mania usually, but can be controlled through medication, uh, therapy, uh, group work, you know, whatever, uh, whatever becomes the, the best resource and tools that the individual uh, can bring into their daily regimen. But there's also a type of bipolar that's called bipolar one. So since we've heard Andy's story, let's stick with it for a moment. Andy, if we it talked about those periods of hypomania, not quite full-blown mania, that's what hypomania is, where he was very functional, extremely functional, full of ideas that he was able to put into action. Some people never go beyond that. They never have the full-blown mania, the psychosis. They're not hospitalized. They're functional. The, the highs aren't as high as full-blown mania. The depressive episodes don't take you down into the depths of despair, suicidal ideation. And so that we call bipolar two. And people can be pretty functional while they're in that area. And yes, the, the, the creativity flows, those juices are just, they're just developing like crazy, great ideas. A lot of artists that we know of and people in the creative field live with bipolar too. It gives them that extra energy we see to be out there creating. But, but both, Terry, are, are chronic right? We, we can't, absolutely, them, but we yes. can manage them. And like, right. and like, like your right. mother-in-law said, Andy, it's, you know, and this is, you know, I'm on antidepressants, a number of my kids are, and I'm like, Hey, look, we got a chemical imbalance and we're going to manage it. And we're going to manage it right. through these meds and through therapy. And yes. it, it, the, the, the good news in it is you, you can manage it. You can't cure it, but you can manage it, but easier said absolutely. than that. I know. Yeah. And that's, you know, kind of the, the good news, if you will, related to most mental illness. It can be managed. Recovery is possible, not cure. So recovery doesn't mean cure. Recovery means it being in that place where you can be very functional, where you are uh, living a life that is fulfilling to you. But you're on your meds, you're going to therapy, you're seeing your psychiatrist, uh, you're doing whatever it is, you're sleeping. Oh my God, sleeping. That's always in our family, the harbinger of bad things to come when my son's not sleeping. It's like, oh, fasten your seatbelts. This is going to go from zero to 900 miles per hour in a matter of five days. Um, so yes, but once we pull him back out of that and he's on his meds, you know, just the same story that Andy tells so eloquently in his book, recovery is possible, very definitely. Yeah. So that's kind of the, the story in a nutshell of bipolar. If we have one moment, I just want to mention one other thing that's a part of it. And Andy alluded to it, but he didn't put a name on it. Not recognizing that you're ill is actually a symptom of these illnesses, particularly bipolar and schizophrenia. It's got a, a Greek name, anosognosia, 
And about 50% of the people with bipolar and diagnosed with schizophrenia have this as a symptom of the illness. And it's an actual disconnect in the communication in the brain that perceives the behavior that one is exhibiting and says, nothing wrong here, <laughs> go for it. And therefore, one doesn't seek help. One doesn't uh, you know, do the things that will bring them back to being completely stable. Yeah. So it's not denial. Um, it's, it's actually a symptom of the illness, which one can outgrow. And it very often happens in those late twenties, early thirties, as the brain is finished developing, that yeah. one can now recognize, ah, this is not normal. Andy, you look um, like you were going to jump in there for a second. <laughs> no, I'm fascinated by this because I hadn't heard of it before. So Terry, thank you for raising it. Um, yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm eager to learn more. And, and I think it, it reinforces this idea that it's not your fault. You know what I mean? To be, Absolutely. to be on the receiving end of these right. diagnoses and to learn about it, we impute. I think I can speak for myself as a patient, so much shame. Um, and it's so hard to hear when you're diagnosed in Terry's case, her son at 19, my case at 20, who wants to hear that they have bipolar one or bipolar two and confronted. I can remember this, I think was pre Google, but I can remember looking up bipolar one after the diagnosis. And I saw that the, the suicide attempt rate is 60%. And the suicide rate uh, is 19%. And so one day you're fine. And then the next day, you know, you've lost your mind. You've been in this, through this thing that you feel is humiliating because society teaches us through its unspeakability. Shame is what can't be spoken about. And so if we're not talking about it afterwards, that must've been something shameful, right? Otherwise we'd be talking about it. And, and it's already hard enough to be on the receiving end of what this means, which is, hey, there's a one in five chance I'm going to end my own life. I have this bomb in my brain that can go off, that can put me and other people at risk. I may not know when that is. And any treatment that I have to do is, it's expensive. Reimbursement rates are low. How do I find the right person? Um, and even more so, if you're not able to, say, this is what I have. And so I think Terry's introduction of that concept is so helpful for me because with denial, we assume there is a willful disbelief right? and it, it's beyond that, right? It's, it's a, yeah. Um, yeah. an inability medically to take it on. And um, so thanks Terry for sharing that. Yeah, absolutely. And, and that's where it's like, you know, Andy is, as you've so humbly shared, it's like, you fully appreciate that's where it impacts the family. Right. Because it's not just, you know, your, your illness, it's, it's, you know, that challenge for the entire family. Um, We're going to take a quick commercial break, but please do not leave us because what we want to shift into in our conversation. And I know Andy and Terry have, you know, great thought leadership on this is, okay, how then do leaders and, and corporate organizations step up to support their employees and their families, right? And and how do we destigmatize, you know, mental health? How do we normalize the ability to share, hey, here is a part of my life, my personal life, and, and here's, you know, how we can step up to support someone as they navigate their way through this journey. Um, I want to thank everybody who's been listening in so far to our Advancing All Women radio show and podcast. You can always check us out at nextupisnow.org for more information on Next Up and all of our podcasts. We'll be back. Follow us on Twitter for more great ideas at Voice America Empowerment. For over 20 years, Next Up has been bringing professional women, allies, and corporate partners together to champion gender equity and advance all women in their careers. Together, we are a powerful, growing community of over 14,000 members and 300-plus regional and corporate sponsors. We work to create leadership opportunities, amplify women's voices in the workplace, and ensure that all women in business can seize opportunities in the now and in the next. Members of 
Next Up gain access to a broad community of like-minded professionals dedicated to women's equity and leadership development across our 21 regional communities. Get best-in-class leadership development opportunities and attend our two annual national conferences, which bring together the strongest minds in DEI&B and leadership. Join Next Up today. Visit nextupisnow.org slash membership to learn more about becoming a member. That's nextupisnow.org slash membership. Find out what's happening on the Voice America Talk Radio Network by keeping up with us on Twitter. You can find us at Voice America TRN. You are listening to Advancing All Women with host Sarah Alter. Want to learn more about the show and about Next Up? Visit our website at nextupisnow.org. That's nextupisnow.org. Now, back to Advancing All Women. Welcome back, everybody. You are listening to Sarah Alter in the Advancing All Women radio show and podcast. In today's show, we are chatting with Andy Dunn, author of Burn Rate, Launching a Startup and Losing My Mind, as well as Terry Ladder, State Program Director for NAMI, Illinois. And what we're talking about is how do you normalize the disclosure of a mental health you know, situation, you know, how do you make it such that your employee feels comfortable and, and more importantly, feels supported as they navigate this part of their personal and health journey? Um, so Andy would love to, you, you'd referenced it earlier, um, this most recent, you know, episode in, in 2016 and 17 that you experienced, you were fortunate that you were with Walmart at that point in time and, and they supported you through this disclosure and through this journey. So share with us, you know, how that unfolded. Yeah. So I, I really had two moments of professional disclosure on having bipolar one. The first was necessitated by the episode that I just had in the subsequent arrest and its ramifications. Yeah. Um, you know, there was a police blotter about the arrest. Um, we worried that there would be a New York Post story or a business insider scoop. I was in and out of the courts. I remember talking to my arresting police officer about it as he took my mug shots. I said, are those going to be public? Uh, and he goes, yeah, they're going to be public, but dude, you're not the founder of Google. You just sell pants. <laughs> and it, for me, I was, it was one of those moments you're where like, you're, okay, you're kind of humbling. Pr- you're praying that you're under the radar and um, oh. so we had a crisis PR firm. I had a lawyer that I had, again, all these artifacts of privilege. But of course, I had to disclose to our executive team and our board of directors what happened. Yeah. And I remember calling the board and calling this emergency meeting and explaining it and just pins and needles for the first thing that was going to be said. And our lead director on the board said, you know, Andy, it, it happens. You know, we're here for you you know, has there been a diagnosis and walk through that? And then he asked something, you know, how's Manuela? You know, they all, the board knew, the board knew that I'd been hopelessly um, incapable of a romantic partner for a long time. And so when Manuela came along, everyone knew about it and they wanted to like, know how she was. And for her. Yeah, totally. Yeah. Um, you know, really rebuilt myself on the back of her faith and willingness to stick with me. So that was the first disclosure was out of crisis. And I think that's not ideal, right? It's so much better to have disclosed pre-crisis so that when the crisis comes, no one's surprised and we're going to collectively be able to be more prepared. And I think that was the situation with Walmart because the next year we were in the process, the transaction process, and, you know, they're buying our company potentially. And when do you tell someone? Um, in the process of something like that, 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 you know, when did, when would I share that I had this issue? When would I share what had happened? And so they were going into, we were, I would say a few months in, they were going into the background check part of it. And I pulled aside the HR 
you know, business partner for the organization I was joining. And I said, Hey, I have this issue and you may find it on the background check. And I just want to let you know about it. And I walked her through the diagnosis and the history of the rest. And, you know, I shudder to think what would have happened if there hadn't been that arrest record, like would I have told them or not, if I hadn't been, if it hadn't been necessitated. Yeah. Um, so I don't want to pretend here. Like I had the courage to do it and broke through. I kind of had to do it because they were going to find this on the background check potentially. And if they found it without me disclosing it, that would be super weird. Um, and would, would be a trust diminishing event. And so I said, here's what you might find. And what she said was remarkable. She said, first of all, she got very pale, <laughs> like, you know, these conversations don't happen that often. And she said, well, let me talk to, yeah. to Doug McMillan, the CEO and this, these things happen. So I think affirming it is the first step, you know, accepting it. And then they went off and came back and said, well, you know, all we need to do is um, review your, your medical records. We'll have an outside person do that. So I had my psychiatrist send all my medical records to their, their person. And I said, well, Dr. Z, as I call him in the book, where did they send, where do they send them to? And he said, I think it was a former head of psychiatry for the FBI. <laughs> and so I thought, oh, oh, wow. Okay. These folks aren't messing around. And then word came back a few weeks later, Hey, you know, our, our outside physician said, you're taking care of yourself, heard from your doctor that you're taking medication, that you're seeing him twice a week. So you've got a, you know, a clean bill of health as far as we see it. And everyone here is relieved because we, we wanted, we wanted to move forward and wow. Like I didn't even work at that company yet. They were just a potential employer thinking about acquiring our company. Mm -hmm. And so for them to know the skeletons in the closet and to acknowledge that what Terry said, this stuff is not curable, but in so many cases it is treatable. Absolutely. And so if you're, if you're on it um, and taking care of yourself, it's a beautiful thing to know that that might not hold you back. So uh, Terry had shared this stat in, in one of our other great conversations that one in five individuals in a given year will have some type of a mental health you know, situation or, or incident. And, and Terry, I know you and I were talking about this yesterday. We don't have the fact, but like in families, it's probably like one in two or one in three that some family will have a family member, right? You know, if you just do the, the math there. Um, so, you know, Andy, it's like, you were so fortunate. You had such a supportive, you know, executive team and company like Walmart. Um, Let's, let's shift into, okay, well, what can leaders do then? You know, how do they do a better job managing their own mental health as well as, as equally important, their team's mental health or their team's family's, you know, mental health? Because it's not, you know, it, it, we, we get dental insurance, we get vision insurance, you know, and, and the beautiful thing is so much of what we've heard now over the past two years is, we're bringing our full and total selves to work because our, our jobs and our lives collided when we all quarantined. And so, so many other companies and leaders are now stepping up to say, yeah, men mental health is an aspect. Um, we had a, a conversation, Andy, a couple months ago, um, Nestle created a mental health ERG. And so if you or someone in your family is navigating their way through that type of a journey. There's now this amazing community that's there to support and, and serve you. But um, Terry, you're an expert in this. This is your day job. Um, share with us, you know, some of the things that you as a leader should be looking out for, but then even more importantly, as a corporate organization providing. Right. <clears throat> so, um, Sarah, you'll recall one of the last times that I spoke with you, the title of my presentation was Mental Health is Health. Right. It's it's right. not this thing yeah. that's over yeah. on the side. It is the health of our brain. And as such, you know, I I am always hopeful that all corporations, all businesses, nonprofits, whoever is out there offering health insurance is including mental health coverage in what they do, because without that, their employees 
are now having to deal with very expensive treatment, stays in the hospital, medication, ongoing psychiatric um, visits, and it gets pricey. It gets pricey. Uh, we are fortunate, um, as I mentioned, you know, I'm here in Illinois with the National Alliance on Mental Illness, and we're fortunate here in Illinois that parity for mental health coverage via insurance is our parity laws are some of the best in the country. But that only means that if an organization offers mental health as part of their overall coverage, they have to offer it on the same basis as they offer any other kind of health care. So if it's five visits to the pediatrician, it's five visits to the mental health provider. Whatever the norm is, it has to be the same for mental health. However, not, it is not mandated that all corporate mental health benefits include mental health. So when it exists, it has to exist on a par with other coverage, but it doesn't have to exist. And I, my fervent prayer is that it someday be there for everybody. One of the things that, that employers can do is build awareness of what mental health issues look like in the workplace. Uh, so that they start to recognize when someone might be starting to spiral in one way or another uh, with depression, with bipolar, possibly schizophrenia, OCD, anxiety. Anxiety is the biggest mental health uh, concern in the United States. 20% of people are diagnosed every year with a mental, with uh, an anxiety disorder. And guess what that number did during COVID? It went yeah. through the roof, right? Especially at the beginning. So it's, I feel incumbent on employers to get this kind of knowledge out into their workforce so that managers and the managers of managers are recognizing what this looks like in hopes of maybe intervening, offering support, letting them know about employee assistance programs, ERGs, like you were mentioning, whatever a corporation might have. Yeah. Uh, and awareness, I mean, and I go back to Andy's book, which to me is a, a wonderful tool for building awareness, is probably one of the biggest things that we've got, the biggest tool for chipping away at stigma, which prevents treatment of mental illness. And so, and just so everybody appreciates, we, we invited Terry, and she, of course, ran out, bought Andy's book <laughs> and is 14 pages away from the end. So don't spoil it. Like Andy said, <laughs> I had to go out and buy his book. Right. Um, right. But we know how it ends. <laughs> right. Yeah. And Absolutely. that Andy's sitting here. Right. <laughs> and that a corporation recognized what was going on. What we have to hope is that that's happening, not just at the very highest level, you know, where they're, uh, you know, buying the Nobos and bringing in Andy and team, but that it's happening at the cashier level, right? That it's happening in the stores, in the corporate offices, that it's happening wherever we have employees, that that attitude of this happens, it's an illness. Here's how we would handle someone who's just been diagnosed with diabetes. Diabetes is always my go-to example of a physical illness. It's yeah. chronic. It doesn't get cured, requires all kinds of different treatments, but it gets done. And we need to do the same with mental health. So at the corporate level, um, that recognition, putting programs in place that will help employees that are struggling. Um, and at the same time, an environment that allows employees to take care of themselves. So an environment that encourages employees to take their proper time off, whatever is allocated, that they're using it, that they're getting breaks away from the office to uh, regenerate themselves, you know, that it's not, oh my God, I hope I can, I can, you know, be able to carry over 25 days of the 30 days I got off this year because I'm such an awesome employee. That's not healthy. Yeah. No. Right? We want them to encourage that, to encourage that they go home 
after a reasonable day's work. You know, maybe it goes a little longer than usual, but it's not through the night, you know, on a regular basis, because that's not good for anybody. And those are the kinds of things that chip away at mental health. So not having an opportunity to regenerate, to be getting good sleep because you can separate from the company. Those things need to exist. That, that culture, to me, that's a cultural uh, standard and environment that is set that says, yeah, you're entitled to vacation. Go take your vacation. Right. It, it, I know, you know, years back, it, it, you would have been scoffed at, right? If you said, hey, oh, yeah. it's a mental health day. Right, yeah. exactly. Yeah, yeah, what's wrong with you? Nobody yeah. else is asking for that. Yeah. Right? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So I think it's, it's that general awareness that creating a space where it's okay to say, I have to take a few days off. Something's going on. I need to see a doctor. Um, you know, and giving the space, if one of these diagnoses comes in to be able to get back to that state of being stable before jumping back in to work, not have that sitting in the, in the employee's mind of, oh my God, they're probably going to fire me. My son's been fired from two jobs for working while manic. Um, you know, it's a shame. It's a shame, uh, that that's happened to him. But he had not disclosed to anybody that this was a possibility. And when I got the phone calls that, wow, mom, they want me to turn around their business. And it was a major retailer and he was a store clerk. I was pretty sure something was going on that wasn't good. And the employer saw it and showed him the door. Uh, And that was the entrance into a major uh, bipolar episode for him, you know, Um, so more compassion. Yeah. Absolutely. A wonderful thing. Yeah. Andy, yeah. Andy, what are your thoughts on this too? My thoughts are to take Terry with me whenever I speak about this, because she's got um I know. she's got it all right. And you know, so um for me, I I talk about three things. And and look, I'm not an expert on what organizations should do because I just finished the book. <laughs> and I'm getting asked the question and it is one of those moments of like, well, I don't know, actually, because I was just telling my story. And there's another element of this where I'm getting lots of messages from people, hundreds. Um, the Terry. Families. Yeah. <laughs> I know families who are suffering, people who are suffering, people who have suffered, so many people who have lost family members to, to suicide. And at some point I want to say like, hey, I'm not a mental health professional. I'm a mental health patient. I'm not sure. (laughs) I'm not, I'm not qualified or I'm not capable. What I would say is that you, um, Sarah and Terry have covered two of, well, really all three of the pillars that I see. The first is disclosure. Um, and I think that with disclosure, it's hard for people in an organization who are coming up to disclose. Mm -hmm. And so I think it's incumbent upon leaders to first disclose. And so my call to action for the leaders out there, many of whom are listening, is to take a moment to do a 30-minute fireside chat at some point with your organization and to spend five to 10 minutes of that half an hour talking about your own mental health struggles and journey that may, may be you know, something diagnosed in your background, and it might not. I love talking to people who are like, well, I haven't had any mental health issues. What do I talk about? (laughs) And I think we all know that you don't make it to, you don't make it to adulthood or deep into adulthood without having been thrown on your butt by something. And so whether that's grief related or addiction, or it's in your family or, you know, your own quote unquote, low level, low grade depression, anxiety, these things that you might not be inclined to bring forward bring those things forward with your teams. And I think there's two reasons, at least two. One is it will create safe space for them to then come forward because they've seen that leadership is making it safe by role modeling that behavior. And two, and this is the fun part, it is directly in your strategic self-interest to do so because the most powerful thing that we can do as leaders to inspire followership is to be authentically vulnerable 
when we can. And I think that I've, look, I've spent 13, 15 years in front of a crowd talking about pants. There's plenty of people looking down at their iPhones, you know what I mean? Or their phones, like pants are exciting, whatever, (laughs) digital brand innovation. Talking about this, talking about a journey with bipolar one, I mean, you could hear a pin drop because we all suffer, you know, universally as humans, as a part of the human experience. When someone else talks about their suffering, it lights up our empathy for them and it makes us feel less alone. And it really will redouble people's commitment to you and your organization. So I think disclosure, we have to go first as leaders. Yeah. We, it's not about what do we do when someone comes to us? That's step two. Step one is creating the conditions whereby someone feels safe to come to us. Absolutely. And then I couldn't agree more. The ERG just makes so much sense, right? So it's disclosure and then it's building community. And we're seeing so much happening with other stripes of diversity. It's not happening quickly enough. There's more to do. But mental health is just another vector for that. And maybe I hadn't thought about this, Sarah, but one of the reasons why maybe I was so fired up about new and now it's become next up is I had this hidden hidden disability, right? I had this hidden diverse thing that I wasn't yet, it wasn't yet included in my life story. I wasn't, I didn't yet belong to that. And so I had, you know, I'm a guy, right? Absolutely. But maybe like I'm taking more, you know, in a, a white guy or half white guy, whatever you want to call it. My mom's from India. And so we should have ERGs at every Fortune 1000 company for mental health yesterday. We should have that. It should be for people who are experiencing issues. It should be for people who haven't yet or haven't shared. And we need, as we do with all the other ERGs, leadership to take an intense interest in it. So it's not just, you know, an echo chamber of people that already care about it. And then to Terry's point, the third thing after disclosure and community is investment. The reimbursement rates are just too low. Yeah. You can't work with someone out of network. You know, my psychiatrist, who's also a therapist, which is really rare. My reimbursement rate is 9%. So it's 91% out of pocket. And I see him twice a week. And I call him the most expensive friend I've ever had. And so it literally is something that I can only afford because we once sold a lot of pants and it's an injustice that Mm -hmm. we can't get the care that we need to say nothing of the intersection with the legal system, the intersection with addiction. We've got to invest in this as a society and corporations Many of you who are listening, you know, are a part of the organizations that could be a part of the change. Until we figure out the right mental health insurance product, which to Terry's point, we don't have yet. Think about that. Like we have dental and vision, right. take care of your teeth and your eyes, but as for your mind, good luck. Yeah. Um, yeah. So we need a mental health insurance product. And until we do, what I'm seeing progressive organizations do is offer a stipend. So offer offering a one, two, three thousand dollar a year stipend for out-of-pocket expenses for therapy and other mental health professional um, stuff because it's expensive. And and with the advent of telehealth too, right? Like you'd think, you know, there's the convenience. And then there's the economics, the improved economics, being able to provide therapy through like a Zoom or a Teams that there shouldn't be barriers to, to happen financially, right? Totally. And here's the good news. Five years ago, mental health technology companies received $100 million in venture capital. And last year, it was $5 billion. So the innovation ecosystem is creating the mm-hmm. solutions, whether it's Lyra, Headspace, Calm, Cerebral, Talkspace, Ginger, Real, Mood. I mean, there is so much happening. And I've been really privileged to invest in eight or 10 of these companies. One of them is actually specifically for the families of people who have experienced a severe mental illness diagnosis in their family, right? Who's taking care of Terry? 
who's taking care of my mom? Who's taking care of the people who are taking care of people who are impossible to take care of? And so we need to be thoughtful about that. So the innovation is happening. The solutions are increasingly getting better and being offered, but companies need to invest in those, right? Companies need to do those partnerships. They need to have that telehealth therapist ready to go. They need to have that outside organization where someone at a company can go to talk about mental health issues. Because many of us, let's be honest, wouldn't, wouldn't feel comfortable going to our employer first, right? It would be far safer to go to someone who our employer paid for, but who had a legal um, reason, you know, a legal uh, mandate to not disclose anything back. And so it's exciting, actually, if we're having the conversation as we are today, societally, if we're having it, it's exciting how much we can do for people. You know, this is the number one killer of young people. Suicide is the leading cause of death. Um, You've heard some of the stats on this call. It leaves no family untouched. So yeah, let's, let's deal with it. And the first step in dealing with it is talking about it. Uh, Um. Andy, thank you so very much um, for being with us today and and sharing your story. Um, Terry, likewise, you know, you shared your own personal journey and, you know, thank you for the the thought leadership and, you know, and the guidance and ideas you have shared. Um, There is no doubt in my mind that every single one of you who listened in today, your minds and your hearts were changed. And that's why we're here. Um, So, Thank you, Voice America, for always giving me and next up this opportunity to to share our voice and our mission with all of you, and more importantly, to shine the spotlight on incredible and beautiful people like Andy and Terry. Um, In the spirit of the month, um, the month being May, and we are focused all this month, as we should be every day, on mental health awareness, we're going to be discussing grief in our next show and how you can manage it yourself personally and how leaders and companies can do a better job of supporting their team members in this journey. To learn more about Next Up and to listen to all of our podcasts, check us out at nextupisnow.org. I'm Sarah Alter and thank you for always listening. Thanks for listening to Advancing All Women with host Sarah Alter. Be sure to tune in again next week. Our program is live every Friday at 10 a.m. Eastern, 7 a.m. Pacific on Voice America Empowerment or catch our replays weekly on Voice America Influencers. Until we talk again, enjoy your week.